Hello, welcome, and thank you for listening to A Worldwide History of Sports. I'm your host, Jeremy Vandenberg. Enjoy the show. history of sports. Um, on this show, we're going to take a look at a specific sporting event and world history and look at not only the sporting ramifications of it, but also the political and cultural effects. Um, as said by the late, great Nelson Mandela, sport has the power to change the world. Today, we're going to be looking at an event that most Americans know. Um, and to those alive at the time, it's one of those where were you when moments. We're going to be looking at February 22nd, 1980, the Olympic Hockey Center in Lake Placid, New York. Um, this was, of course, better known as the Miracle on Ice, when a team of young college ice hockey players under the head coaching of Herb Brooks defeated the mighty Soviet Union to eventually go on with only their second ever gold medal in history. I was starting out... Um, you really have to look at the history of the American side on things to understand just how much of an upset this was. Uh, they had only ever won one previous gold medal at men's ice hockey in the Winter Olympics, which was, of course, in 1960 at the Lake Tahoe Games. Uh, they finished ahead of the Canadians and the Soviets to claim their first ever gold. Uh, really what sealed it was a decisive match late in the medal round uh, with a 3-2 comeback win over the Soviets, thanks to a goal from William Christian with five minutes left in the third period. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the head coach of that 1980 team, Herb Brooks, was the final person cut for the team. Although he did play eventually in the 1964 and 1968 games, Herb Brooks did miss out on that gold medal in 1960. Um, 1964 is kind of where it starts to get bleak. The Americans uh, in Innsbruck, Austria, the team gets beat pretty badly uh, by the Soviets, the Canadians, the Swedes, the Finns, and the Czechs. In all five of those losses, they're outscored 30 to 14 um, and really never get close to meddling, let alone uh, really even winning any of those games. Uh, four years later in Grenoble, it really doesn't get much better. They lose their first four to begin the tournament. Uh, they get Destroyed by the Czechs, the Swedes, the Soviets, and the Canadians. Most notably, they got hammered 10-2 to by the Soviets. So really, you see that a downward trend um, from the high in 1960 is starting to happen. Um, until that is 1972, you see some improvements from the team. They get the silver medal. Uh, despite some early losses from, to Sweden and the Soviets, uh, they rebound and they beat the Czechs and the Finns. Um, they really confirmed the silver medal after a 6-1 win over the Poles. Uh, and you see it's a bit of a it's a bit of a rebound after pretty disappointing appearances in the last two Olympics. Um, 1976, it, any momentum they thought they had in 72 really goes uh, goes back down. They get they get thumped again by the Soviets and the Czechs. Starting to see a recurring theme here. 
uh, just how dominant the Soviets are over the Americans. Um, and a pretty distant fifth place leaves them far off of any thoughts of gold or hell, even a medal. Um, which is really kind of where we start to look at Lake Placid. Um, as I said, they'd only medaled once since their gold medal victory at the 1960 games. Um, they had not once gotten close to beating the Soviets. Uh, so any thought of a gold medal was uh, it was a bit of a fantasy. Um, and really leading up in the 1979 World Championship with a pretty similar team, uh, they draw against Finland and the Czechs. They lose to Canada, and they're eliminated in group play. So they're not even in consideration for uh, the medal rounds. Um, which really brings us to the point of the hiring of Herb Brooks, which is kind of the catalyst to this miracle run that ends up happening. Uh, Herb Brooks was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, on August 5th, 1937. He played uh, famously for the University of Minnesota, which was one of the dominant uh, American colleges in men's hockey at the time, and still is today. Uh, but as we mentioned, he was cut a week before his first Olympic opportunity in 1960. Uh, he told the coach after the Olympics, uh, Coach Jack Riley, calls him up and goes, well, he must have made the right decision. He won. Kind of an insight into the psyche that Coach Brooks had. Um, for him, the result was everything. Uh, he played, as we mentioned, in the 64 and 68 Olympics before kind of hanging up his skates and he take, took up coaching. Uh, and it's important to remember at this time uh, of why the American team is fielding these college players. Um, the Olympics at this time was strictly an amateur competition. Uh, so the players in the NHL for the American team and for the Canadians, uh, this was arguably more of a disadvantage for the Canadians because all the best professional players in the NHL at that time were pretty much from Canada. So really this hampered the North American teams because for the Eastern Bloc teams, uh, the Soviet unions, Czech republics, there was a bit of a loophole, which I'll get into later on why their best players who were by all sense professionals uh, were able to play in the Olympics and thus made their team so dominant. Um, Getting back about Herb Brooks, uh, he was hired by the University of Minnesota, um, and he won the national championships in 1974, 1976, and 1979. Uh, made a pretty big name for himself, which attracted the eye of U.S. hockey. Uh, U.S. hockey hires Brooks pretty soon after he wins the third championship to make the team competitive again. Uh, as I mentioned, they'd only had one medal, that 1972 silver medal, uh, since the Olympics in 1960. Um, he was an extremely demanding coach uh, who really thought of this pretty revolutionary way uh, to play the game, focused much more on athleticism, finesse, and teamwork, uh, as well as speed and creativity. Uh, it was not at all about the individual player, um, much more about how can you use the teamwork and physicality and athleticism to get more than you would previously think out of an average group of players. Due to the team's age and size, like you have to remember, these are all college players, so they're all in their late teens, early 20s. Uh, they're not the biggest players in the world. Um, he really tried to have his practices avoid contact unless absolutely necessary. 
he knew they were outmatched on the ice most of the time. Um, and so he tried to find ways to play around that. Um, he knew in a straight 1v1 physicality matchup, it wouldn't go well. As a bit of foreshadowing later, when we talk about that game versus the Soviets at Madison Square Garden. Uh, another interesting note, he demanded psychological testing of his players, um, as well as a heavy knowledge of international hockey. He knew that the game that his team would be playing on the international stage was a lot different than at the college level. Um, and he made his players study exactly those differences as much as possible. As we said, you know, his game plan for these games was heavily focused around the idea of a team rather than individual skill. Uh, he picks a team, mostly of players from the University of Minnesota, University of Boston, and Madison, Wisconsin. And he left off some of the most highly talented players in the college game at the time, which wasn't a very popular decision. Um, he rather decided to go with a team that he thought would perform best as a team uh, because he knew individual one-on-one -on -one talent, it would lead them to very little success in Lake Placid. So it's important to really have a context of where the timeline is at. Um, about 18 months prior to the start of Lake Placid, so we're looking at about towards the tail end of 1978. Um, Brooks gets his staff together and they really work on constructing a team uh, by holding tryouts throughout the United States. Uh, they only have one player who played on the previous Olympic team in 1976, and that was Bud Schneider. Uh, he gives the captaincy to Mike Irizioni, uh, who I'm sure a lot of Americans know who that is, uh, who's a defenseman out of Boston University. Um, the team had practiced exclusively together starting about 11 months prior to the games. So familiarity was something that Brooks really preached. He wanted these players to know exactly what move their teammate was going to make at exactly what time. Um, something that the Soviets and the Czechs and these other Eastern Bloc teams uh, knew all too well due to just exactly how they practice. Um, and they were by far the youngest team headed into that Lake Placid tournament. Um, they played about 61 games from September 1979 to the start of the games in February 1980. The results were somewhat mixed. They played really a whole range of teams from other college teams to NHL teams, other international teams, and semi-pro teams. Um, a lot of Americans, of course, know the movie uh, Miracle. There's that famous scene where after a 3-3 draw in Norway, he lines his team up on the blue line after the game and makes them do skating laps, uh, saying again, again, again. Uh, that is true. That is not Hollywood um, making their mark on something. That That is the true thing. A lot of the mannerisms that they depict Brooks as showing throughout that movie were pretty true to some sense. Uh, of course, the final warm-up game, it's at Madison, Madison Square Garden uh, against the Soviet Union so just a few days before the start of Lake Placid. Um, Brooks wanted them to get an idea of exactly who they were going up against, and uh, it was a pretty big eye-opener. They get smashed 10-3. to 3. Um, It was really not a very glamorous affair. Madison Square Garden was only about half full. Uh, 
although the people who were there they they made a scene out of it uh posters were supposedly banned but one was snuck in and it read according to the washington post in 1980 it said russians are red violets are blue gold is for the u.s nothing for you um it's probably thought of as a joke by the time they probably didn't realize exactly how true that would end up being uh the americans much of their detriment came out and tried to play very physical they were playing the soviets more than they were the puck and uh they quickly go down four zero um the journalist at the time is kind of unsure if the booze during the Soviet anthem were directed at the anthem or the singer for wearing a low-cut shirt. <laughs> Not too much sure on the context there. Uh, that could be Washington Post just trying to deflect from the fact that the Americans got destroyed in the game. <laughs> um, prior to the game, another funny annotation I noticed, uh, someone changed the scoreboard to read US 15, Soviets 1. Um, but as I mentioned, they get wrecked, uh, and outplayed in every single way. Um, Brooks was pretty honest in his post game press conference. Uh, he says, said our early hitting was senseless. It wasn't very smart. Uh, we were just running around trying to hit somebody to grab somebody. That's bad. Uh, the Soviet coach more or less agreed, uh, but was satisfied with this team's performance and thought they were in a good spot heading into Lake Placid. Now, the more fascinating buildup in my mind is really from the Soviet side, because there's this perception with Soviet teams that they're all just robotic and they only know how to win. They're not taught to be emotional or to play with creativity. And I couldn't be more untrue about this Soviet hockey team. Um, Ice hockey was not really a sport in the Soviet Union at all um, until post-World War II. Uh, a football team, soccer team out of Moscow, FC Dynamo Moscow, uh, did a tour of London in 1945 after the war. And they witnessed a Canadian exhibition hockey match. Uh, it was similar to a very popular sport in Russia called bandy. It's like ice hockey, but it's played on a on a football or soccer-sized rink uh, with much larger goals. You have two 45-minute halves, uh, which, of course, opposed to hockey, it's three periods of 20 minutes. Um, now, it was funny how ice hockey gets started in the Soviet Union. It really was picked up by Joseph Stalin's son, who took a liking to it. Uh, the Soviet National League and the national team gets formed very quickly in 1946. And they started playing their first international exhibitions versus LTC Praha from the Czech League in 1948. Really the father of Soviet ice hockey is Anatoly Tarasov. Um, he was the first coach appointed by the Soviet government. And when he asked, how do I do this? Because he had never seen a hockey game before, never played it. Uh, the Soviets tell him, think of a new style. Create a Soviet style of hockey. Um, and that's exactly what he did. He created a system that was heavily influenced by off-puck movement and teamwork rather than what was traditionally seen in the Canadian and American leagues of individualism and personal skill. Um, they attempted to make their international debut in a tournament in 1953 at the World Championships, but pulled out because their top player, Vesvalov Borov, got injured just prior to the tournament. 
uh, which seemed a bit extreme, but for the Soviets, it was of utmost importance that they never get embarrassed on an international stage. Uh, really, the Soviet-American rivalry was non-existent um, in the early days of ice hockey because the American team was never very competitive with that one exception of 1960. Uh, the Soviets' biggest rival was Canada. Um, Canada at the time had the best players in the world, um, and they were what every national team desired to play against. They were the they were the gold standard. Um, and as we mentioned in the Olympics, because of the amateur rule, the Canadian professional players were never allowed to play in them. So the Soviet team never really got to test themselves. Uh, and thus in the Olympics, the Soviets dominated. They won the gold in the 1956 Olympics, and then as well, 1964, 68, 72, and 76, with really, without much of a challenge. Really the biggest moment um, for this Soviet team to test themselves is in the 1972 Summit Series, where they played an eight-game series versus Canada's top pros, or first four in the in Canada and then the last four in the Soviet Union. Um, it was really something that Soviet coach Tarasov pushed hard for. Uh, politically, it was very challenging because at that time, at the height of the Cold War, Canada was very much allied with the United States. And thus, any relations with the Soviet Union were extremely cold. For the Soviets, they were absolutely terrified that if they did play Canada's pros, that they would get embarrassed. Um, it was a huge monumental effort for Tarasov to convince the Soviet government to allow these games to be played. Um, and unfortunately, just prior, uh, Tarasov is fired uh, by the Soviet government for refusing to throw a match against the Czechs to create better relations with the Czech government. So, going into the 1972 Summit Series, you have a Canadian team that is extremely overconfident and a Soviet team that is terrified that they're going to get completely outplayed. Fast forward to Game 1, you have an overconfident Canadian team, as we said. They go up 2-0 very early. Uh, everyone thinks that it's going to be a walkover. Um, and that ends up not being the case. In Montreal that night, they get thrashed, 7-3. to three. Um, And it's a pretty humbling moment from the Canadians. Uh, and really, one of my favorite aspects of this series is the gamesmanship that goes on. The Soviets were full of it. They refused to release their lineup until right before puck drop. And really left the Canadians guessing, because they did not know really much about this Soviet team, only what they had seen in the amateur tournaments at the World Championships and Olympics. And so, especially thinking they go up 2-0 about five minutes into the first period, they think it's going to be a walkover. Ends up not being so. And the Canadians are really awed by the fluidity and the movement of the Soviet front line. Um, they were not able to deal with them really all night long, uh, and they had circles run around them. Uh, Canada to their credit, makes heavy changes, and they rebound in the second game and secure a 4-1 win to level the series at 1-1. Uh, 
in Toronto. Um, game three, which is a kind of a precursor to uh, what ends up happening a lot, uh, the Canadians blow a two-goal lead late in the game, and Soviets snatch a 4-4 draw in Winnipeg. Um, at this point is really when the tensions start to boil, because uh, Soviet manager Robov, he rips the officials. Uh, and again, something that we'll see a lot as this series progresses. Um, in Game 4, so we're at this point, each team has a win and a draw. Remember, uh, it's a best-of-eight series. There are no overtimes in these games. So we go to Vancouver. It's the final game on Canadian soil. Uh, and the Soviets destroy the Canadians. The Canadians get loudly booed off their home ice. Um, and it's really looking pretty bleak for the Canadians. They're heading to Moscow, which is a pretty new place. None of them had ever played there before. Uh, but they are accompanied by a couple thousand pretty rowdy Canadian fans who make the journey over to Moscow. Game five, uh, Leonid Brezhnev, the Soviet Secretary General, is in attendance along with all the other high officials because this is the first opportunity for them to really see their hockey team against the best pros in the world. Um, and through much of the game, it's looking pretty bad. The Soviets go down 4-1. Um, and really, they're looking pretty out of it. Canada looks like they're going to level up the series, and then out of nowhere, the Soviets score four unanswered goals and end up winning the game 5-4. to four. Uh, The one kind of non-hockey aspect that is bemusing to the Soviets in this is the behavior of the Canadian fans. Um, for the Soviets, a hockey match is supposed to be a bit like an opera. Um, it's, you go and you cheer, but you act professional, you act polite. Whereas the Canadians, they were chanting, singing, going crazy at every goal. And I even had a chant they made up, da, da, Canada, yet, yet, Soviet, um, which the Soviets had never really seen before. Um, so we go to game six, the Soviets are about as in the driver's seat as much as you could be. One more win from them, uh, and it's over. Um, the game six is really where the gamesmanship boils over, uh, if you could even call it gamesmanship. Uh, Vitor Karlamov in game six is skating up the ice, and Canada's Bobby Clark takes his stick in an axe motion, is the best way I can describe this, and absolutely hacks his ankle from behind crippling him pretty badly. Um, and really, that's where the series turns really ugly. Um, you'll see Canadian players at this point skating aggressively up to referees and threatening them to punch them, threatening to attack them. Um, it's pretty bad. After all, the dust settles... Canada win game six, three to two, and they force a game seven. Canada again wins game seven, but there's a pretty big refereeing controversy in game seven because the Soviets were deeply unhappy with the refereeing. Um, 
and yet for game eight, it was set to be those same referees. Even though they've lost their last two, the Soviets going into game eight only need a tie to win the series. The Canadians have to win to take the series back home to Canada, take the trophy. Um, Before the game, there was a plan that a pair of German referees were going to take over due to the poor officiating in game seven. However, the Canadian players got into an argument with the Russian coach about this change in refereeing, and it was decided the same refs were needed just to stop the two teams from fighting each other. The pre-match ceremonies are pretty frosty. Um, The Canadian team brings out a totem pole as a gift to the Soviet team, which the Soviet team is about as reluctant as possible to take it. Um, Regardless of all that, the match does start, and it's a pretty back-and-forth, pretty close affair. Um, The Soviets take a one-goal lead into the third, and remember, they only need a tie to win this series. Um, and that plays into their minds a little bit too much is they played a little bit too defensively and they concede twice um, with the fatal blow coming in the final 40 seconds. Again, it's an extremely dirty game. I sympathize with the referees because I can't imagine how difficult that must have been to referee that one. Um, But alas, the Soviets do drop the last three games in Moscow and the Canadians take home the cup. Um, Even though they did lose this series, it was a moment for the Soviet team to kind of look at themselves and go, okay, we didn't get embarrassed. We just competed with the best professionals in the world, um, and it really took a slash to our best forward's ankle that really killed us in this one. So despite the loss, the Soviets aren't really too down on themselves. um, And... They're making nice progress and winning about every world championship and Olympic gold medal that's possible, uh, which leads us into 1977, which I think is probably the most significant point prior to the Olympics for this Soviet team. And that's when Viktor Tikhonov uh, is, hired of the, is hired as manager of Siska Moscow and the Soviet national team. Uh, this is important because almost every Soviet player on the national team played for Siska Moscow. Um, he is about as different of a manager as it could have been from Tarasov, who started the team. Um, Tikhonov is almost a dictator in his management style. Uh, He forced the players to live in the military barracks for about 11 months out of the year, controlled every aspect of their lives. Um, He was a colonel in the Soviet military and acted in every single way exactly like one. He was not at all popular amongst the players, but despite this, he won the world championships in 77, 78, 79. And really from a results standpoint, things are going perfectly. Um, So that leads us into the build-up to the 1980 Olympics. Um, The Soviet team really had some of the best players in the world. Vladislav Turiak, the goalkeeper, was by far the most talented shot stopper in the world. Um, and their forward line of Boris Mikhailov, Valery Karlamov, and Vladimir Petrov was without a doubt the most dominant front three in the world. There wasn't really much of a doubt that they would be heavy favorites to take home the gold medal in Lake Placid, um, really despite what was a pretty heated buildup 
which we're going to get into. The build-up to the 1980 Olympics was about as heated as a time in the Cold War. So at this point, I want to set the stage of exactly what it was like uh, in the build-up to the Lake Placid Olympics. Um, the number one single at the time in the U.S. is Rock With You by Michael Jackson. Um, at this point, the U.S. federal government is drafting plans for fuel rationing. Um, there's a big anticipation of fuel shortage in the upcoming summer. Um, the Iranian hostage crisis is really at its worst point. Um, but really the main event, and is why this was such a contentious game, contentious Olympics, and why relations between the United States and Soviet Union were so bad at this point, is December 24th, 1979, Soviet forces invade Afghanistan. Um, in a larger sense, this is really kind of the beginning of the end for the Soviets, um, although they did not know it at the time. I think it's important to look into exactly why Afghanistan was so contentious between the United States and Soviet Union. Um, officially, Afghanistan was neutral during the Cold War, um, but in the 50s, it grew closer to India and the Soviets as the United States got closer with, with Pakistan and began arming the Pakistani army and simultaneously refusing many requests from the Afghan government for weapons of their own. The Soviet-backed incursion in 1973 sees the king of Afghanistan, Mohammed Zahir Shah, to be ousted in a bloodless coup. Uh, the new leader, Mohammed Khan, is implemented and begins a proxy war against Pakistan, escalating the tension between Afghanistan, Pakistan, the United States, and the Soviet Union. To Khan is executed in 1978 by the Afghan army, who is sympathetic, to the Marxist People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, who were much more loyal to the Soviets. They had some pretty radical factions um, who sought a pretty violent uprooting of Afghanistan's traditional feudal system. Um, this really was an uncontrollable group that the Soviets thought that they could control um, and really leads to their downfall. Uh, there's a violent faction of the group led by an extremist wing headed by Deputy Prime Minister Hafizullah Amin. Um, and in the first years of power, they killed tens of thousands. Um, the Soviets don't trust this faction as they feel they're too violent and will provoke a civil war. Um, tensions heightened when the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, Adolf Doves, is killed in the kidnapping in Kabul. Um, in 1979, the U.S. increases intelligence and military aid to Islamic military groups in Afghanistan most notably the Mujahideen, at the advice of Pakistan. Um, as I mentioned before, the U.S. and Pakistan at this time are very, very close. Uh, the Afghan Prime Minister Amin invokes a 1978 treaty with the Soviets to ask for Soviet military assistance to fight the rebels. The Soviets begin by sending aircraft, weapons, and advisors, but as the year passes, the requests turn into military units requests. So you have the Afghans at this point, asking for actual Soviet soldiers on the ground. Um, initially, the, hope, the Soviets are extremely hesitant to send any troops, uh, but as the year progresses, they really U-turn on this, and they turn on the pretty unpopular prime minister at this point. I mean, uh, December 27th, 1979, is really the point of no return for the Soviets. 
General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev orders 700 special force soldiers into the Taibeg Palace to capture and execute Prime Minister Amin. The Soviets immediately begin occupation of the country. The international community at this point is livid, um, especially the United States, as you could expect. Uh, at this point, the U.S. All announces a boycott of the 1980 Summer Olympics, which were due to be held in Moscow. The Soviets considered the same by Lake Placid. Ultimately, obviously, they showed up. Um, the U.S. quote-unquote wanted to be the bigger man by showing the Soviets hospitality, but apparently traveling to Moscow at this time was not an option. Uh, funny note, I picked up the senator from Arkansas, David Pryor, said that banning the Soviets would be the Soviet response, and that I'd like to think that we're bigger than that, uh, despite the fact that the U.S. banned themselves from the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. Uh, he calls it a Soviet response to potentially ban them from coming to the Lake Placid Olympics. So that's a funny little ironic note that I noticed. Um, Funny enough, about Lake Placid in 1980, they're the only host city to apply to host. Um, and it was selected in 1974, so they had about six years to prep for this. Uh, and also funny enough, this is not the first time that they hosted. It was the first being back in 1932. They bid seven times between 1932 and 1980 to host, but were never successful until 1980 when they had no one to run against. Um, some interesting factoids about this Olympics. This is the People's Republic of China's first ever Winter Olympics that they participated in. This was the first time the IOC recognized PR, the People's Republic of China's Olympic delegation rather than the Taiwanese delegation. Um, this is where they forced Taiwan to rename themselves as Chinese Taipei and fly a different flag than Taiwan usually would fly during the games. Um, Taiwan ignored this and showed up under their flag anyway and were actually refused entry and then subsequently boycotted the games. Um, to this day, if you watch the Olympics, you'll see that it is still Chinese Taipei and not Taiwan. The games were only projected to cost around $30 million, um, which, if you know anything about Olympics, you know that they never cost as much as they say and are always at least two to three times more. In this case, they ended up costing around $168 million, the largest cost overrun in the history of the Winter Olympic Games to that point. Um, there is pretty rampant nepotism and malpractice present within the organizing committee. Uh, which actually led to a federal investigation. Uh, an example of this, the food contract that was given um, out had pretty heavy ties to organized crime groups. Um, there were unfathomable amount of logistical problems um, during these games. Lake Placid, for reference, a town of a couple thousand people, and you're having the international sporting world descending on this tiny little town um, for multiple weeks. Um, they estimated about 50,000 traveling spectators each day. You can imagine how that would go into a town of a couple thousand people and only one small mountain road leading to the town. Um, there were no accommodations really at all and transportation was horrible. Uh, private cars were banned from entering the town, um, which meant spectators had to park in parking lots that were out of the town and then rely on buses to bring them in. 
um, and the buses were notoriously unreliable. Um, it was almost a daily occurrence that spectators were stranded in the freezing parking lots, um, which actually led the state of New York to declare a partial state of emergency. Um, so you can imagine just how much of a disaster it is just from a logistical standpoint to try and host these games in such an isolated community. Um, the other big takeaway I got from researching this was that the athlete housing, the Olympic Village, was essentially in a prison. Um, particularly for the Eastern Bloc teams, they were given horrible rooms that were very cold. The food was not very uh, nutritious, what you kind of need to be performing at your peak athletic ability. Um, and so basically, you had athletes who would stay in a prison, go play their event, and then return back to a prison and eat a pretty underwhelming meal. Um, so that's really a memory of the Lake Placid Olympics were it not for the Miracle on Ice. There is a reason why the games have not gone back to Lake Placid since then. Um, let's lead into the tournament, finally. Uh, the format is pretty simple. It's two groups of six. All eight of the teams from League A in the 1979 World Championships were in the tournament, followed by some of the best runner-ups in Group B from the World Championships. Um, as I said, there's two groups of six. They each play each other once. The top two in each group advance to the medal round. Um, the U.S. importantly avoids the Soviets in the group play. Uh, they're placed in a group with Sweden, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Norway, and West Germany. Uh, so it was pretty pretty much a tournament-wide consensus that the United States was about third best in this group, uh, far behind Czechoslovakia and Sweden. Um, and who, of course, do they play in their opening two games? They play Sweden and the Czechs. Um, their game against Sweden takes place only three days after their disaster at Madison Square Garden. Uh, and here we get really an interesting psyche into how Herb Brooks works. Um, first game, he sends his assistant, Craig Patrick, into the stand with the walkie-talkie to get a higher vantage point to kind of look at the Swedish formation during this game. And he's relaying the line changes and the formation changes and such to Brooks as the game is going on. Um, it's an interesting fact I saw about this is that the crowd was not very into this one. There was only about 4,000 in the stands. Uh, for reference, the Lake Placid Olympic Center could seat about 8,000 at least. Um, it was really indicative of how little interest the team had from the fans. They were really not expected to do anything in this tournament. Um, Swedes go up 2-1 in the third period, which a loss to Sweden in this one would really put the Americans in a bad spot to try and advance to the medal round. Um, Brooks really rolls the dice and pulls Jim Craig, the goalkeeper, which was not always a popular move at the time. Um, and it pays off. Uh, defenseman Bill Baker hits a slap shot with about 27 seconds left, ties it up, and the game finishes 2-2, which was... A necessary result and a pretty surprising result because the American team was not expected to do anything in these Olympics. 
Um, and Sweden was seen as a pretty solid team that was absolutely a contender to get on the medal stand. Um, and yet, despite the draw, they go into their second game in a tough spot. They pretty much need to beat the Czechs, who are going to be the other team contending for those top two spots. Uh, the Czechs were largely seen as the second best team in the world. They weren't even really thinking of the Americans being a threat to them. Um, they were really more focused on how they were going to beat the Soviets for that gold medal that always seemed to elude them. Um, this one, there was a sold-out crowd. The draw against Sweden was enough to get people interested in it. Um, and the Czechs, as I said, they were really good. They had medaled in the last four Olympics. They were the second-best team in the world, and they had 10 future NHL players on their squad out of 20. So half the team eventually ended up playing in the NHL, uh, including that future Hall of Famer Peter Stotsny, uh, along with his two brothers. Some funny little story about them is they were all desperate to leave the Czech, Czechoslovakia um, and had set up a plan to defect to Quebec during the games. Uh, but the security around the Olympic Village made it virtually impossible for them to meet their contacts, so the plan never, never formalized. And coming into the game, the Czechs were in really good form. They uh, absolutely destroyed Norway 11-0 in the opener. Um, and like I said, they were really not too concerned about the Americans. They were, they were supposed to be an easy win. Uh, the U.S. takes a really quick, fast approach to the game, um, which countered the Czechs' technical, methodical strategy perfectly. Uh, by the third period, the Czechs were exhausted and the much feeder Americans um, really dance circles around them and uh, wins the game seven to three, which no one expected. And was, had they not beaten the Soviet Union later in that tournament, would have been an own miracle in itself, honestly. Um, Brooks in the post game, interesting left, interestingly enough, in these uh, post game press conferences, he doesn't allow his players ever to meet with the press. Um, he goes out alone, and post-game, he says, now we really have to show what we're made of. A good team has to win the games it's supposed to win and upset some teams it's not, it isn't supposed to beat. I'm afraid of American kids because they get too cocky. Again, really good insight into exactly who Herb Brooks was. Um, he was always hesitant to praise his team, and he was always very keen on ensuring that his team was in the right mental headspace, give themselves the best chance to win. As I said, the Swedes and the Czechs were the best two teams in that group, which left the final three games against teams the United States was expected to beat. Uh, a comfortable 5-1 win against Norway follows the win over the Czechs, uh, despite the fact they fell one nothing behind. Um, a 7-2 win over Romania comes next, which leads to the final game against West Germany. Uh, a game the U.S. has to win to advance, and early it's not going well. They go down 2-0 quickly, um, but they score four unanswered to win 4-2 and advance into the medal round um, eventually against the Soviets. Moving over to the Soviet side in Group B, Soviets run the table on Group B. Uh, in their opening, they win 
over Japan, 16 to nothing, followed up with a 17 to 4 win over the Netherlands. Third match, they smashed Poland 8 to 1, which goes into the fourth match against Finland. And you actually start to see some cracks with the Soviet team. Um, they were down 2 to 1 with five minutes left in the game before Krutov, Maltsev, and Mikhailov gave them a 4 2 win. Um, despite the fact that they were down, they did outshoot the Finns 48 to 13. Only scoring four goals on 48 shots. You see this recurring theme within the Soviets that they're a little bit wasteful, which really starts to bite them later on in the tournament. Uh, the final group game against Canada, they've already qualified for the knockout round, for, for the medal round. Um, but again, they, they go down 3-1. They're, they're in a hole, um, but they, they pull it back and they win the game 6-4. They've won five out of five in the group play, but the last the last two games show that there is a way to beat them. Um, Finland advanced in second place to the medal round. So getting to the medal round, you have the United States and Sweden out of group A, Soviets and Finland out of group B. Um, the way the medal round works is not a single elimination. Um, instead, what you do is you take the result you had against the other team from your group in the medal round. So for the U.S., that was Sweden. They drew. So the U.S. is already starting behind the eight ball. Uh, the Soviets enter the medal round in first because they are 1-0 due to their win over Finland. Uh, the U.S. and Sweden are tied for second place because of their ties against each other. And Finland enters in fourth place uh, because of their loss to the Soviet Union. Um so given the fact that the U.S. only did tie Sweden, they absolutely needed a win against the Soviets to really have any chance of winning a gold medal. Even a win over the Soviets doesn't guarantee them a gold. Um, a draw is almost certainly good enough for the Soviets for them to win the gold medal. Uh, going into the day of the game, the game was scheduled for a 5 p.m. Eastern Time puck drop, which meant ABC could not show the game live uh, due to other commitments they had with other events going on at the time. The U.S. hockey team tried desperately to change the game to prime time at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern, so it could be shown live, but the Soviets refused every request. Again, a common theme with the Soviets is the bit of gamesmanship. Um, they like to control as much as they can in all of this. Uh, so because of this, the game was never shown live in the United States. Um, it was shown on Tetele on ABC. Uh, the Soviets' official reasoning as to why they didn't agree to the time change is because the game would be on at 4 a.m. in Moscow as opposed to 1 a.m. As if it really made much of a difference, I'm not sure, but that was the reason the Soviets gave. Um, of course, a lot of Americans will know this scene from this movie, even if they haven't seen it this famous video of the Herb Brooks speech in Miracle. Um, while they may have changed the speech a little bit, the speech did, a, a speech, I should say, did take place. Um, Herb Brooks pulled out a piece of paper and wrote a great speech about how it was their moment and how they had to take it. Um, really, no one expected the Americans to win, but Brooks knew that if there was ever a time to do it, it would be now. Um, the ABC hockey broadcast team at that point only had one person who had ever covered a hockey game before, and that was Al Michaels. 
Um, if you look at the footage of this, they are essentially operating on a hamster wheel. Al Michaels and Ken Dryden, his other commentator, are literally sharing a microphone. You have Al Michaels asking a question and then leaning over and holding his microphone in front of Ken Dryden. Um, and they're both wearing just these incredible blue sweaters, uh, which is just really peak 1980. Um, really just <laughs> a moment almost as iconic as the game itself. Um, the Olympic arena is absolutely packed. There are signs, flags everywhere. Uh, Al Michaels later recalled that the arena was physically shaking before the game actually even started. Um, Brooks instructed team physician George Nagabad to keep a 40-second timer going constantly so that line changes could be done at those intervals. He was worried about the team's fatigue levels for the third period and wanted to make sure they still had fresh legs, uh, which ended up working perfectly. The U.S. starts very well. Um, early on, they get some shots on Trediak's goal uh, and go close one or two times, uh, which was much different than how the game at Madison Square Garden started. Um, the Soviet players later recalled they were blown away by how much different the American team was in this game um, compared to what happened at Madison Square Garden, which, remember, was not very long before. Um, the Soviets get an early goal, uh, despite the Americans' good play. Um, Vladimir Krutov takes a deflected shot uh, and it gets by Jim Craig, who, in my opinion, he might want that one back. It was a little bit of a soft goal for him to concede, uh, but it was really only the only questionable moment from him throughout the game. Uh, five minutes later, on a rare attack from the U.S., Les Schneider rifles in a 50-foot slap shot on the counter to equalize and send the arena into absolute raptures. Um, and this is where... The game really starts to turn, not necessarily for the scoreline. Um, it was a goal that the Soviet coach Tikhanov really thought that Trediak should have saved. Um, and Trediak always said that if he let in an easy one, that he would then turn into an absolute wall the rest of the game. But in the mind of Tikhanov, that's already a warning that Trediak might not be on this Three minutes later, after the Schneider goal, though, um, Sergei Makarov uh, scores, puts him up 2-1, and it seemed pretty clear that the Soviets were going to take the lead heading into the first period break. Um, that is, until a few seconds left on the clock, Dave Christensen launches a shot from center ice. I mean, literally, I don't know if he'd even reached the center ice line when he hits this, but launches one, it takes a couple of bounces, and... Uh, Trediak really was paying more attention to the clock, thinking that there was not enough time that if he did give up a rebound, that anyone would be able to put it in. So he kind of fumbles it back in front of him, which the two Soviet defenders in front of him weren't really anticipating this either, so they were kind of puck-watching as Mark Johnson kind of races through the two Soviet defenders, and with a second left on the clock, uh, slots it right under Trediak and levels the game at two. Um, 
this was, besides the winning goal, I think, the most important moment in the game. Um, just the psychological difference for the American team of going down 2-1 into the first period intermission in a game they have to win as 2-2-2, two, 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 uh, especially when they just got blown out 10-3 by the same team not very long ago. Uh, it's monumental. And on the Soviet side, this leads to arguably the biggest turning point of the game. Um, because of the way the goal was scored, there's about half a second left on the clock when the puck hits the net. Uh, the Soviets all walk off the ice thinking the, the period's over. Uh, and the referees actually have to get the Soviets to send some players back out on the ice uh, to finish the period officially. They send a couple players... And they send out uh, their backup goalkeeper, Vladimir Mishkin. No one really thought anything of it at the time. They just thought, okay, they're sending out a goalkeeper. Uh, Trediak was already in the locker room, so they just sent out the backup. Not quite. Um, the players return for the ice in the second period, and no Trediak. He's on the bench. Um in goal is Vladimir Mishkin, who is a solid goalkeeper in his own right, but he's not. He's not Trediak. Um, and not only were the American players shocked, the Soviet players were shocked. Um, Tikhanov, years later, admitted this was the greatest mistake he ever made in his career. Um, and the Soviet players would all eventually say the same thing. This not only are you taking out the best goalkeeper in the world, it's a psychological advantage to the American team because they're looking at this and going, okay, we're doing something right. We've rattled them. And not only that, you're shooting on someone who is not as good of a goalkeeper. Um, despite all this, though, the Soviets absolutely dominate the second period. Um, they outshoot the U.S. 12-2. Yet, they only get one goal to show for it late on, thanks to a power play. Jim Craig really makes a name for himself in this period, and this is where the, kind of the legend of Jim Craig begins. He saves 11 out of the 12 shots, pulling off some remarkable saves that no goalkeeper at the time should be making. Um, it's important to know the goalkeeper pads at this time are significantly smaller than you would see now. so. The act of saving a shot is much more difficult. Um, and despite this, Jim Craig is pretty much the sole person responsible for keeping the United States in this game. Despite all this, they are down 3-2 heading into the third period. And as I've stated a few times before, they need to win this one to have a shot at the goal. Uh, the Soviets continue to dominate the start of the third. Uh, at one point, the U.S. had only had two shots in 27 minutes until uh, Krutov of the Soviet Union gets called for a slash about six and a half minutes into the third period. Um, and this is kind of a... The U.S. at this point is at a make-or-break point. Um, they've been completely dominated the last period and a half. Um, they're down in the game that they need to win. And this is really kind of the last opportunity to have hope of winning this game. They get a few shots early on Michigan, but it looks like they're going to waste the chance in the power play. There's only seconds left. Dave Silk makes a run into the Soviet blue zone before getting knocked over. And just by miracle, the puck 
dribbles his way between the legs of Soviet player. Um, actually, if I remember right, it actually sneaks through his skate somehow and ends up right at the feet of Mark Johnson, who fires it under Michigan, ties the game 3-3. I mean, you have to imagine the psychological effect this has on the American players and the Soviets, because at this point, the U.S. is getting completely outplayed. Uh, despite all this, with 12 minutes to go, it's a 3-3 hockey game. The Soviets are thinking, how the hell are we tied in this game? First of all, we're out shooting them about two and a half to one. And this is the same team we just thumped 10 to three two weeks ago in the same state. Um, and yet, despite this, despite the good luck, the U.S. still needs another goal. Which comes two minutes later. Pavlovich finds Rizioni unmarked, unmarked by the goal. Um, and Michigan is getting screened by his own defenders. He can't really see it. Um, fires it, packs him. And the U.S. has a completely improbable 4-3 lead. No one can quite believe it. Al Michaels later went on to describe how their equipment was physically shaking in the press box. Um, because the arena was so loud. For the U.S., it's almost that sense that they've scored too soon because there's still 10 minutes left in this game. And yes, they're winning, but one mistake and their hopes of a gold medal are gone. Um, the players describe it as the longest 10 minutes in their lives. Um, but how I mentioned earlier at the start of the game that Brooks had them doing 40-second shifts, this pays off because... The U.S. at this point was fitter than the Soviet team, and they were able to survive the onslaught. They didn't completely bunker. They actually had a few noticeable attacks and even some good chances to extend the lead. Because at this point, the Soviets are pouring absolutely everything and everywhere forward. Maltsev hits the post, but as time wore on, the Soviets were really panicked, and they started shooting on sight rather than their usual paint shoot buildup. Um, for the Soviet team, this was a pretty unfamiliar situation to be losing this late in a meaningful game. Uh, the most contentious point, and you do see this in the film, Miracle, Tikhanov refused to pull Mishkin in the final minute uh, for an extra attacker. As they had never practiced six on five, and he didn't believe that it was effective. Um, so you can imagine they are 4-3 down in a game they have to at least tie, and they refuse to pull Mishkin. Um, the clock starts winding down with 30 seconds. The Soviets are trying to get shots. They fire one wide. Um, the U.S. clear the puck from their own zone with seven seconds left. You can hear on the broadcast the crowd starts to count down. With a couple seconds left, the players start pouring on the ice. And that's where you hear the famous, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Um, by the time the clock hits zero, all the U.S. players are on the ice. And it's this incredible shot where all the American players are by Jim Craig's goal. The crowd's going crazy. While the Soviet team is just kind of standing at center ice, not really believing what they've seen. Um, Brooks immediately goes straight to the locker room and breaks down in tears. Just completely overwhelmed by this moment. The In the post game, the ABC Olympic sports anchor claims that 
This is the sporting equivalent of a group of Canadian college football players defeating the Pittsburgh Steelers, who at the time were Super Bowl champions. Uh, the most incredible stat line from the game is that the Soviets outshoot the U.S. 39-16. to um, The U.S. score on 25% of their shots, which is almost unheard of in hockey. Um, <laughs> funny quote from Mike Rizzioni's father. He said when his son scored, he almost slapped his wife out of the chair. Um, which seems like classic 1980s humor. President Carter calls the team and congratulates them, invites them for a few bottles of Coke at the White House, and that they embodied the spirit of the Western world. Um, the fact that he invited them for Coke was mostly due to the fact that most of the players were underage. Um, Brooks, in the aftermath, praises the U.S. fans for being so supportive, but also thanks them for not being overly hostile to the Soviets. And this was kind of a common theme throughout the broadcast that, yeah, despite the tensions that were going on between the United States and the Soviet Union, it, it was just a hockey game still. Um, in the aftermath, the news kind of filters around what happened, but remember at this point it had not been shown on TV yet. Um, because of the tape delay, no one actually was able to watch this live except for the 8,000 or so people in the arena. ABC was terrified about technical issues while showing the tape delayed game on primetime. So they had poor Hal Michaels and Ken Dryden commentate the Finland-Sweden game that was directly after the U.S.-Soviet game in case they needed to cut to it if the U.S. game feed cut out. Um, so you can imagine Al Michaels, who's just called the most incredible game in hockey history in the United States, and having to go commentate a game between Sweden and Finland. Just the thought of that is pretty funny to me. Um, the American people at this point are going ballistic. They've celebrated in the streets across the country. In New York, um, someone took it upon themselves to get a giant banner reading US 4, Soviets 3, and they hung it directly in front of the Soviet consulate in New York. Um, yet, despite the incredible win, the US still isn't home and dry. Uh, they need to beat Finland in the final game to secure the gold medal. Um, if they slip up at all, a Soviet victory over Sweden, which was very likely, would give the gold medal to the Soviets. Um, and they celebrated for about a day, but they're back on the practice ice the next day to tune up for the final preparations for the Finland game, um, which starts out pretty rough. Uh, the U.S. goes down 2-1 to one after two periods, which... Brooks, as he's leaving the locker room before the players go into the third period, looks at his players and stops and goes, if you lose this game, you will take it to your effing graves. And then he looked back again and he said, your effing graves. Uh, clearly it worked because the U.S. scored three unanswered goals from Verkota, McClanahan, and Johnson. Seal a 4-2 victory and they confirmed the gold medal. The photo from the post-game celebrations from the Soviets appears in Sports Illustrated with no caption. Uh, the editor, Ludemeyer, said that no words were needed. Everyone knows what happened. Um, you have, in the gold medal ceremony, the famous scene of Irizioni after the anthem is played, turning around to his players and motioning for all of them to run onto the stand, uh, all going crazy. 
13 of the 20 U.S. players eventually went on to play in the NHL. Um, yeah, despite this, the U.S. has never won gold in men's hockey since. Brooks went on to coach in Europe uh, with mild success. Uh, he eventually did return to the NHL, uh, most famously coaching the New York Rangers. Um, he returned to the U.S. team for the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City uh, and again beat the Russians in the semifinals, but eventually lost the gold medal game to Canada. Um, transitioning to the Soviet aftermath, uh, the coach Tikhonov was apoplectic with his players. That's the best way I can describe it. He openly blamed the game on Chediak, Karlov, Petrov, and Mikhailov. He particularly blamed Chediak for the mistake on the second goal and the others for being wasteful with their chances. He openly told numerous players to retire after that game and that that was the end of their Soviet career. Um, the Soviet media and the citizens couldn't quite believe it. Uh, CBS did a report from Moscow shortly after the game and uh, captured one Soviet citizen saying President Carter must have ordered them to win. So shout out Jimmy Carter. <laughs> the Soviets still had a chance to win the gold. Um, as I said, if the U.S. did fail to beat Finland, the Soviets had a game against Sweden, which would still have an effect upon the medal standings, uh, which the Soviets took revenge out on the four Swedes and won 9-2. Soviets ended up winning the silver, but they were so upset uh, after the medal ceremony that they refused to turn their medals in to get their names inscribed, something that was very much against the Olympic custom. Uh, despite this failure, the Soviets did go on to win the next two gold medals until the dissolution of the USSR in 1991. Uh, Tikhonov did remain as coach, and he made true on his promise um, to clear out some of the veterans, especially Chodiak and Mikhailov. Um, sadly, Karlamov was killed moments after being released from the team in 1981 from a car accident. Uh, numerous players in the Soviet team were drafted by NHL teams throughout the 80s, but uh, they were never allowed to leave the USSR, the USSR until... Permissions were granted to some of the players in 1990, so full 10 years after the Miracle on Ice. Um, so that'll lead us kind of into the conclusion about the effects that really this game had. Um, on one hand, the Olympics are extremely important to countries, and especially in the context of the Cold War and communism. Uh, the Olympics were a way to showcase their political system to the world, that athletes could thrive under communism, that it really fostered a culture where human achievement could be so dominant on a world stage. Um, and when this team lost the gold medal, it really put a damper on their Olympic program. For the United States, this came at a time when it was a very low morale point in American history. Uh, you had the famous Jimmy Carter speech talking about how this was a crisis of confidence, that Americans 
generally we're not very patriotic at this time. And this is not to say that this healed everything, but it definitely sparked a wave of American patriotism. Um, the fact that the Soviets had been so dominant over the U.S. Um, made just this moment that much more humiliating for them. And as I said before, the United States was not really a rival of the Soviet Union in their eyes because the U.S. had never been close to them. And this was a huge thumb in the face to them. They could not really process the fact that they had lost to this scrappy American team with a bunch of kids. Uh, Sports Illustrated declared that this was the greatest American sporting moment um, back in 2016. Um, and it's kind of still a moment where if you go to American sporting events, um, you'll see people in Rizzioni jerseys and Jim Craig jerseys. It's just still a common sight. It's built into a bit of a cultural myth. Uh, you ask a lot of Americans, they all know the famous Do You Believe in Miracles line. Um, which really leads us to the final question of exactly how significant a moment was this in the context of the Cold War? Um, on the one hand, yes, it is just a hockey game. Had no effect on geopolitical tensions, no effect on a war, on a nuclear arms race, anything like that. But morale is a part of these conflicts. And for the United States, this was at a pretty dire time in American psyche. Um, and while, yeah, it didn't change everything, it gave Americans something to be proud of. From the Soviet perspective, um, the players will always tell you that it was just a loss in their eyes, and while a bad one, that they did rebound and win the next two gold medals and countless world championships. Um, in the context of the history of the Soviet Union, this was maybe not a cause of the downfall, but it was indicative of the downfall. Um, the Invasion of Afghanistan really was a bit of a trap for the Soviets. It poured a ton of resources into a conflict that really wasn't going anywhere. Um, similar to how Vietnam was for the United States. The Soviets eventually started to run out of money for the war. They could not keep up with the American spending um, as cracks throughout Eastern Europe started to fall in the late 80s, uh, particularly with the Berlin Wall, with Ceausescu falling in Romania, with the start of the end of Yugoslavia, the Czechs, the Hungarians, the Miknik underground movement in Poland. Um, this really was the beginning of the end of the Soviet. all know that Gorbachev comes in, in implements Glasnost and Perestroika, gives some freedoms, um, to which at that point really opens the door for drastic change in the Soviet Union. 
I don't think we'll ever see what happened in the classroom again in American or Soviet history, simply just because the circumstances at that time were so remarkable. Um, the political tension between the two countries, given what the Soviets had done just two months before, um, and the fact that the U.S. was such a heavy underdog at a time when the country was in a pretty big depression. Um, the fact that it was in the United States, in the Olympics, in a gold medal like potential match, the circumstances I just don't see can ever be repeated, which makes the moment such a special moment in American history. Thank you all for listening. If you ever have any suggestions on topics you want me to cover, suggestions on how to make it better, please leave them in the comments below. Please like, subscribe, follow forward to speaking to you all again next week.